Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Central this morning, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our last Sunday of Lent, and we've been studying the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms that God's people sang as they traveled to Jerusalem for Passover and for other feast days, and we've been studying and singing them along with God's people as we make our own journey to Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, next Sunday, and Holy Week. We've been asking the question, how are we led to Jesus? The Jesus who meets us there, the Jesus who meets us wherever we are. This Sunday, we come to Psalm 131. It's a psalm that calls us to walk with the Lord on a calm path in the face of our pride and our presumptive hearts. It's hard lessons. On this psalm, Charles Spurgeon said, it is one of the shortest psalms to read but takes the longest to learn. Where do you need to experience God's calm in your life today? Let's pray as we turn to his word. Oh Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we would behold Jesus here. We need you, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Reveal yourself to us through your word, we pray. Oh, Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. The Lord teaches the humble his way. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. What if? What if? your mind race to what if when you throw back the covers in the morning? What if? Or maybe when you lie underneath the covers at night and are unsuccessfully trying to get to sleep. What if? What if I don't do so well on that interview tomorrow? What if I bomb that test? What if the other person really is better than me? What if I have that disease? What if my child walks down this destructive road? What if? It's one thing if what if thoughts float through your mind, but sometimes those what if thoughts seem to establish a colony in your brain. And everything seems to feed these scenarios and they just consume us and and paralyze us. And it can be tempting to game out every little thought, every scenario, but it's a trap. Those fears can stress us and they they consume us and it's destructive. Why? Because living in that what-if colony in some ways displaces God from his rule in our lives. It takes him out of his place of rule and reign and and puts him on the side. If, If our life is a play and we are the author and the director of our play, then we put God on the side as if he's just some bit part. A little place, little role to play in the play of my life. 
It's a destructive place. It's a dangerous place to set the Lord to the side. So sometimes the Lord calls us out of that what-if life and reminds us that he's the God who calms. He speaks to us in our anxieties. He speaks to us to call us out of our pride, to call us out of our presumption of trying to know how to deal with all the what-ifs in our lives. He shows it to us in verse 2. It says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Repeats it. So it's perhaps to make us dwell on that thought a little bit, to, to linger with it. Just how calm is a weaned child? You know that a weaned child doesn't need its mother's milk any longer. But getting there is really hard, isn't it? Ask any of our parents of newborns, parents of children who are growing just a little bit. How well are they sleeping when they're trying to be weaned? A nursing child, not yet weaned, protests, sometimes through hot tears, that my needs must be met now. I demand feeding now. They may even throw a tantrum or two, bless their heart. But the image here is a child that's past that point past that point of protest in the lap of mom. This, the child pictured here is calmed without the need of being nursed. It's a child whose cries for uh, hunger are no longer needed. They're, they're past the point of dysregulation that called to be comforted. A weaned child is one who's able to sit in mom's lap contented. A child who feels the warmth of a mother's love, a weaned child, is able to simply sit in mother's lap, and that's enough to satisfy. Sitting in mother's lap is enough to soothe an anxious soul. There's, there's rest, there's peace, there's contentedness in mom's lap. Maybe even while the storms of life rage all around, as long as I'm in my mom's lap, there's calm. That's the picture that God gives us here of being in his presence. There is calm. That word that he chooses here for calm is a word that in Hebrew means smooth. And in other places, it describes the surface of water. Like if you see a lake and there's no wind and the surface of the lake is just glass smooth. There's no turbulence of ripple underneath the water. It's completely smooth. It's, it's calm. And that's what a soul is like. No anxiety gurgling underneath. But it's a person who is confident and calm in the lap of God. Our creator, our redeemer. And even when things aren't going as they're expected to go. In the presence of God, even when the what-ifs torment, being in the tender presence of Christ can calm us. At least that's our hope. That's the song that we sing. That's the song that we sing to ourselves. That's the, the truth that we speak to ourselves in this psalm. Even when we're struggling to experience it, we sing it back to ourselves. We tell the truth to ourselves. That's what God's people sang as they traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. This is what they sang as they went to Jerusalem to remember that they once had been enslaved. That's why they went to Passover, to remember that they had been enslaved for 400 years, and God brought them out of that slavery. It was the blood of the lamb that protected their lives, the blood of the lamb that ensured their, their freedom. 
And so that they would remember that there's a calm in the presence of God's deliverance. They sang this psalm. And you and I maybe experience the same thing. Sometimes it's hard to remember that I can be calm in the middle of whatever I'm experiencing today because I have a God who delivers me. A God who is able to deliver me from whatever I'm experiencing right now, we come together as God's people to sing together, to hear the truth together, to be reminded of what God is able to do. We sing it perhaps when we're not calm so that we can be reminded of the truth. This psalm is written in the perspective of a testimony you, you read it, my Lord, my heart's not lifted up, my eyes are not too high. It's the perspective of someone who, I remember when that, when I was too proud. I remember when my eyes were lifted up, but not anymore. It's the perspective of a testimony. God, what you've done before, I know that you can do it again in my life. Do you need that today? Lord, what you've done before, I need you to calm me again right now. There are two particular scenarios that are in mind, in mind in this psalm when we find ourselves perhaps still children protesting, not exactly sure that my needs are going to be met at the hands of God. So the Lord steps into calm. Under what conditions? Well, first, God calms us in our pride. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Hearts lifted up, eyes raised too high, both point to pride. A heart lifted up is exalted, as in I'm above all these other suckers out there. My eyes are high. That means I'm, I'm up. My viewpoint is from above. I'm exalted. It can look down on everyone and everything. That's the very definition of a deeply proud heart. And to some degree, it describes every one of us, doesn't it? Each of us in some way occupies a heart that's elevated above other people. We feel superior to someone in some way. Whether it's I feel intellectually better than or socially superior, I feel I'm more beautiful than or stronger than, or I'm just more righteous than that other person, or I'm right and they are not. All of us, in some way, create some sort of platform on which we sit elevated and we look down on other people. If you're here this morning and you just can't see it, you just can't see any way in which I find myself proud and elevated above other people, let that be a flashing warning sign in your soul. If you can't see it, that in itself is a huge warning sign. One commentator suggests that pride is the most pervasive of all of our sins. And if it's not the most pervasive, it's a close second. Pride is that sin that has us sit up above and look down on somebody for something and we're all guilty. Missy, my wife, volunteers with our youth, and she absolutely loves it. I mean, she adores the students in our church. Kids, I think Missy is your number one fan. If you ever wonder who's your number one fan, your number one cheerleader in our church, I think it's probably my wife, just so you know. 
Um, uh, last Sunday, I'm not going to say which student this was, so not to embarrass you, but last Sunday, Missy and I were both marveling how one particular student seemed to have grown a foot overnight. And uh, we were talking about this, and this student came alongside and stood next to Missy just to demonstrate the height difference. And the dad was there, and dad wanted to take a picture to document the, the, the vast difference that had come between the two. And so dad stood in front of Missy and this student and squatted down to take the picture. You know why, right? When you take a picture from below, a tall person looks even taller, right? So it made the difference even more from below. And the dad mused about a particular politician that the media didn't like. And photographers would always raise their cameras up really high and take pictures of this politician from above. And you know why they do that, right? If you take a picture from above, even a tall person looks smaller when you take a picture from above. This particular politician, although he was tall, earned a nickname, Little Johnny, because whenever he was photographed, he always looked really short in the photographs. That's what hearts lifted up and eyes too high due to other people. They make them look small in our estimation. From our vantage point, everybody else appears small. At least they're much smaller than I am. That's what matters. That's pride. And it's pervasive in every one of our hearts. But maybe in a way that we don't always recognize. Have you ever noticed that at times the most prideful people are at the same time the most deeply insecure. Have you ever noticed that before? That sometimes pride is a projection of a mask of insecurity. People can be so prideful so that no one understands how deeply insecure they really feel on the inside. It's true. Pride sometimes occupies that space of, I have to be the best. I have to be super impressive. And in order to cover over the fear that I have that I'm definitely not the best, I'm probably not even competent, I'm going to put on this show. I'm going to project this incredible self-confidence and then maybe you won't even notice that I'm not really that good. Pride can be this cover Pride can be this mask of our deep fears that I'm really not even good enough. And into that space, that, that place of pride is our hidden insecurities, our hidden fears, the Lord steps in with a word of calm. Because here's the truth. If you know Jesus, if you know that the Lord God is your Savior, the Lord Jesus has come for you, your life does not depend upon you being the best. Your reputation does not rest on whether or not you are super impressive. Your life depends on this, verse 3, O Israel, you are a child of God. You belong to the king of heaven and earth. O Israel, hope in the Lord, the lamb of God who takes away all of your sin on the cross. The lamb of God who has taken your sin and your shame upon himself. The Lord who has bore all of your, your fears, the ways that you've messed up in your life, all the things that you want to keep hidden on the inside and has stand victorious over them in his resurrection that's who you are. You're joined to that Jesus who's been crucified and who's been raised from the dead for you. 
You don't have to pretend to be the best. You don't have to pretend to be super impressive because you were joined together to Jesus and his record of perfection, his record of righteousness has become now yours. And you don't have to hide your sins hoping that no one will ever find out because Jesus knows about them and has been judged for them already. They're already exposed. Jesus already knows. The one whose opinion matters knows. And he's forgiven them. He's covered them in his blood and you bear them no more. Your life doesn't depend on whether or not you're super impressive because you're joined to Jesus. And he is impressive. He's perfect. And he makes you perfect in his own eyes. Jack Miller, a pastor and missionary, used to say this. The only sin that can control you is the sin that you can't confess. The only sin that can control you is the sin that you can't confess. And in Christ, you are completely known and fully forgiven. And so there's no hiding anymore because you can confess anything. He already knows all of your sin. He's exposed all of your sin. He's forgiven all of your sin. So no more prideful pretending because Jesus' life has become yours in the gospel. What? is going to calm you out of prideful pretending in your life? Who's going to rescue you and me from that feeling that I must be super impressive in my life? It's only this. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Every other reputation you build your life on is sinking sand. Every other thing that you depend on for a sense of righteousness and worth in this life, all of it is sinking sand. Only on Christ, the solid rock, will you be allowed to stand forever, for all eternity. What will enable you to take a lower seat and serve someone instead of exalting yourself to a seat of judgment and looking down on them? The only thing that will enable you to do that is freshly seeing how the Lord of glory came to seek and to save you. How the Lord of glory has come to serve you, to save you. And how he set you free to love and serve another. The gospel of Jesus calms all of our pride as he frees us to serve where we've only wanted to take a seat of judgment before. He calms us. You don't have to be the most impressive. You don't have to be the, most, the best because you belong to Jesus. But maybe that's not your anxiety. Maybe your anxiety this morning is not rooted in being impressive. Maybe your anxiety has more to do with when things don't go the way you expect them to. Maybe your anxiety has more to do when things seem to spin out of control in your life. Is that you today? Well, if that's you today, the Lord calms us in our presumption. Look at verse one again. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. What's too great and too marvelous? 
control. What's too great and too marvelous for creatures like us? Sovereignty. What's too great and too marvelous for us? Making things that we want to happen certain to happen. That's too great for us. Ensuring that what we want people to do, that they actually do, that's too marvelous for us. When we want to presume to control our lives in every detail, that's too great and too marvelous for us. We can't, but we sure try. And in that anxiety of trying to control our lives, the Lord steps in sometimes with a severe mercy to calm our hearts by reminding us that Christ sits on the throne and we don't. That Jesus is the one who's ascended to rule and to reign. He rules over us and he overrules us so that his good and his marvelous purposes for us and for his world are what are put into practice. And sometimes to shake us from our presumptive self-sufficiency He has to send some severe mercy into our lives. It seems counterintuitive that in order to calm us, sometimes he has to shake us. But it's true. To calm us out of our presumptive self-sufficiency, sometimes he has to shake us out of it. I shared with our session on Monday night what the Lord is teaching me right now about this very thing. If you've been around Central for a little while, you know that I've, I've had migraines for a very long time. I've had them for 30 years, and if you've been here since last fall, you know that they're getting worse. Um, we've tried everything to try to get rid of these migraines, and over the past year, they've got, get, gotten appreciably worse and more frequent. I've, I've got great doctors taking excellent care of me. I've tried all kinds of different therapies. Everything that's legal, that is. I've been in the hospital with migraines. Um, I've had you pray. I've had our session pray. I've had pastors anoint me with oil and pray. All for healing. And the Lord hasn't done it. For reasons only he knows. Reasons that are too great and too marvelous for me to know or to try to control. So it's left me wondering what my lesson is. What, Lord, you're not healing me, so what, what are you teaching me here? And I don't know the why. I don't know why he's doing this, but I am learning things. And one of the things that I'm learning right now is that God's healing grace is tremendous. I keep asking for it. I ask for it every single day. His healing grace is terrific, but it's not everything. What is something that is incredibly necessary? Everyday necessary is his sustaining grace. Having his grace to endure and be sustained with a pain and all the other things that just persist day after day after day after day. That's what's become precious to me. Sure, I want to be healed. But I think that if the Lord healed me, I might forget about how bad it was. 
in two weeks or six weeks or three months or a year. But where he has me right now is I can't forget how much I need him every day, every single day. I have to have his sustaining grace if I'm going to endure. I can't forget it. Not for a single day. Which may be one of the reasons I have this headache that won't go away. As God knows my temptation to presumptive self-sufficiency. It makes me think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. So that I will not become conceited. I've been given this thorn in the flesh. So that my tendency to presumptive self-sufficiency will not blind me to the amazing, precious grace of God. He's allowing me this for right now. I don't know that I've ever experienced a need, a daily need for the amazing grace of God like I have since September. It's beautiful. It's painful, but it's beautiful. I've been reading a lot from another spiritual hero of mine. You hear me quote Charles Spurgeon all the time. It's because he's one of my heroes. He was a 19th century manly, barrel-chested, cigar-smoking London pastor who would preach to 10,000 people at a time without magnification. He was just amazing. One of the things you might not know about Spurgeon is that he had a persistent battle with depression. Crippling depression, chronic illness. In fact, across the years of his incredibly successful ministry, Spurgeon was unable to preach a third of the Sundays of his ministry. That's a lot of time out, a lot of missed opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And it doesn't make sense to me because if you add them up between his time alive proclaiming the gospel and the people who read his sermons since, there are hundreds of thousands of people who've been converted through the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. Hundreds of thousands of people. And it doesn't make sense to me why a guy that was so effective at evangelism, God, why wouldn't you have him in the pulpit every Sunday? Doesn't make sense, Lord. That's too great and too marvelous for me to figure out. Why, Lord? It doesn't make sense except... Maybe the Lord used his weakness just as powerfully as he used him in the pulpit. This is what Spurgeon said about his own depression and his pain. He said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Now picture this, he's he's in England. And so he's thinking about the English coast with these waves that come against the the rocks, the craggy coastline that come just one right after another and pound on these waves, one on the rocks, one right after the other. And Spurgeon is saying, I've come to kiss the waves, these waves that, that crash upon the rocks. I've come to see it's beautiful for these waves in my life, these the pain in my life, the depression in my life, because it throws me even harder against the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus. It's these waves, this depression, this hardship in my life, this illness has, has taught me to lean more into Jesus. 
It's taught me that Jesus is all I've got. When I'm down in the depth of the depression, Jesus is all I can hang on to. And it's the depression that teaches me. Jesus is all I've got. That's what verse 1b is. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I can't figure my life out. But verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. O child of God, no matter what storms come in your life, hope in the Lord. His name's all capitals again. We've talked about that a number of times. The intimate, personal, covenant name of God. The blood-sealed name of the Lord who came and took on flesh to become the Lamb of God, crucified for you that all of your sin would be forgiven, that all of your diseases would be healed, that even death itself would be conquered. Hope in that God. Even when the hardship of your life throws you against that God, celebrate who that God is. That he is one who is trustworthy and that every detail of your life is under the reign of that King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse three says, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth, hope in him now that God rules your life now. Even in your mess, even in your now, that God is on the throne When the waves crash, Jesus is on the throne. And into forevermore, he's coming again. When he will right every wrong, he will heal every disease. He will cleanse every touch and corruption of sin. He will banish every taint of evil. He will eradicate even the smell of death forever. Calm Now, because this God is solidly in control and he's coming again to conquer every enemy and he's coming soon. For me right now, migraines are my waves slamming me against the rock of Jesus, the one in whom I trust. What are your waves? His plans, his ways may not make sense. And yet when they force you to daily embrace his sustaining grace, when his ways push you to embrace him and feel your need of him like you've never felt before, when they press you to long for his return as the most beautiful, precious thing in your life, it's worth it. It's worth it. This week, as I've been meditating on Psalm 131, I, I uh, paraphrased it. I put it into my own words, and this is, this is how I've paraphrased Psalm 131. Oh, Lord. I've given up on all my pride. I've given up on my arrogance of looking down on anybody else. Oh Lord, I've given up on trying to figure out all the twists and turns of my life. All I have left is to sit in your lap and rest. So Lord, 
I sit in your lap and I rest and know that it will be enough until I see her face. He is enough. He will meet you in your what ifs. Because when your what ifs meet the God who's on the throne, that's where you experience calm. Let's pray. Lord, you are our great and our gracious God. And we confess that sometimes you don't make sense to us. Sometimes we are convinced that our plans are much better than yours. Our judgments are better than yours. Sometimes we are convinced that we can run our lives that will be satisfying in ways that are more sufficient than yours. And Lord, with this psalm, we confess those are all lies. And so Lord, we come to you this morning asking that you would be the God who calms. Calm us from all of our desire to be impressive. Call us out of our pride to kneel at your feet. Calm us from our arrogance that seeks to compare ourselves and judge others and help us to bask in your grace and call us out of having to figure out all the twists and turns of our lives and let us trust you instead knowing that you are good. We love you and we kneel before you in the name of Jesus. Amen.